Would you like to reach thousands of dedicated permaculture practitioners with more information about your business, class, or service? Consider partnering with the podcast. For more information, contact me directly at 717-827-6266 or send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. As we embody our values and live ever differently, how do we change the communities we're a part of as we become ever more apart from them? This is one of many thoughts I have as we enter this conversation with Kai Sawyer and look at his life as a practitioner embracing peace, permaculture, and the gift economy to bring about social and cultural change in Japan. Let's go ahead and get started with the conversation with Kai, and I'll join you again afterwards. Then Kai, can you give us a bit of your biography and background and the work that you're doing in Japan, and we can take the conversation from there? Excellent. I was born in Tokyo, and I lived there for about six months before moving to uh, one of the most famous rice-growing regions in Japan called Niigata Prefecture, northwest of Tokyo. And that was where I spent seven months growing up amongst rice paddies. Pretty much that's all there is, rice paddies. And then from there, moving to Hawaii, Honolulu, Hawaii, so not the beautiful beaches, but just another urban concrete jungle, Hawaii, because both of my parents were finishing up their PhD. So we were a family of four students in Honolulu. And then we moved back to Japan, and this time Osaka, which is the second largest city, I think, or third in Japan for middle school and high school. And then shortly after I graduated high school, I went to University of California, Santa Cruz for college. So pretty much where I consider my home is the Pacific Rim. So anywhere along the Pacific Rim, I feel, is is quite comfortable and easy to lightly root down, but I've never rooted down in my whole life. And as for my parents, my mom's Japanese and my dad's American, so I'm called a half in Japan, and that's kind of my my cultural identity, what I associate with. So I'm neither Japanese or American, and I'm not Japanese-American, but I'm, I'm sort of this mix between two cultures and don't really ever fully integrate into any community because it's just such a different experience. But And I think that has uh, affected sort of how I see permaculture and all the other things that I do is, is, is kind of an integrating of various elements that I've come into during my life. So some of those elements are agroecology, nonviolent communication, mindfulness, sort of the social justice energy that the West Coast of the U.S., particularly San Francisco and the Bay Area have. Um, So those are some of the elements that I've kind of mixed in and then brought um, with me to Japan. And I'm just doing experiments. And I started in Tokyo. I moved from the Bullock's Permaculture Homestead, which is up in Washington State, where I did two years of uh, permaculture internship. And then I, after March 11th earthquake that happened in the great, I think it's called the great 
Tohoku earthquake or something like that. And then the Fukushima nuclear meltdown, which happened the day after, I decided that doing permaculture in a rural area where conditions are really amazing and it's just like paradise was great. And that was what I want to spread around the world. But it, it didn't really fully make sense to me to do that while people are suffering from nuclear meltdowns or, you know, like any kind of huge environmental toxic situation or war, these, these larger issues that affect a lot of people's lives. And, and so living on a permaculture oasis just isn't an option. So that was kind of something that really had an impact on me was like, I was living an amazing life exactly the way I wanted to live. I've also lived in the jungle in Costa, well, it was a natural, it was a tropical dry forest, but I, I call it the jungle, but jungle in Costa Rica, and it was also amazing. But it just came to me that there are larger issues and my privilege allows me to do certain things that most people in the world don't have the option to. So I wanted to bring my permaculture practice and kind of my activism to sort of larger issues that we face as, as a population on a country scale, on a global scale, um, and also bringing permaculture to places that I don't really associate permaculture to. So, for instance, um, Tokyo, which is a super urban, high-consumption area, and really trying to examine how, how can we shift the values, the practices of people who live in our capitals, who are, from my perspective, responsible for things like the Fukushima nuclear meltdown, because both the energy consumption and the regulation and all other factors like the banks that give money to the nuclear power plants, the government that's supposed to be regulating it, and then the headquarters of Tokyo Electric are all in this one area in Tokyo. So the people who run those power plants, who promote those power plants, who market them, um, the people who build infrastructure and businesses based on high electricity consumption are just really concentrated in this one area. And the impacts they have on the rest of humanity is massive. So for me, it's, it's kind of like, how do we bring this consciousness, these values to people there and invite them in a really beautiful way to start to shift the way they live? And that can be growing food or composting or doing a potluck or these small acts that actually do have a much more profound impact into their lives and how they see reality and how they interact with other people in the environment. So that's kind of my experiment right now is, is through this project called Tokyo Urban Permaculture is just doing different experiments that are fun, that engage populations that aren't into natural farming or organic gardening or even stepping into nature to start to be more in contact with that subculture and then hopefully build that up into a more mainstream culture. So that was kind of my initial sort of reason for coming back to Japan and living in Tokyo for a while. And then now I, I've moved out two hours um, away from Tokyo um, and doing more of a training center called the Peace and Permaculture Dojo, where we'll train activists to kind of bring some of those values and practices and experiments into Tokyo after a certain level of 
confidence and empowerment. So, yeah, in a nutshell, that's kind of what I'm doing. So you're really blending the use of the landscape with the design methodologies of permaculture to integrate your interest in social movements so that you can be looking at some of the community and economic sides of permaculture in order to grow the existing subculture that you're finding in Japan so that perhaps over time that can become a larger movement? Yeah, and I wouldn't say the subculture in Japan because, I mean, in Japan it's a sub-subculture. It's so small. Um, Natural farming is super small, contrary to what people might imagine. And permaculture is even probably even smaller. But yeah, it is. It's bringing these subcultures that mainly I've experienced through the West Coast in the U.S. and Costa Rica and Hawaii to Japan. And there's a lot of complexity in that because of just, you know, kind of ideology and using English words or, you know, Western thought, theory, movements in a country that it's been heavily colonized after the war. So there's a, there's, yeah, there's a lot of different layers that I try to look at, but on a nutshell, yeah, that's kind of how I conceptualize it. And I'm really particularly interested in the cultural aspect because living in Tokyo and seeing people and how they live and listening to what they say, it's like, there's a mantra that they often say and that's one is I don't have enough money and the other is you can't eat without money and I think that really encapsulates the reality that people are living even though these Japanese people in Tokyo are some of the wealthiest people on average if you look at the entire scale of of how people live on the planet and so if these super rich people compared to you know the average of how everybody else lives on the planet are saying they don't have enough money or they don't they can't eat without money then what's the point for me of trying to grow food because it's not that we don't have enough food it's it's a worldview that's actually preventing people from seeing reality that we throw away a ton of food you can get food without money But if you don't believe it, then it doesn't exist in your reality. And so that's kind of what I feel like when you look really deep into the root cause of a lot of the issues that we're facing, I think what for me it boils down to is one is like culture, cultural practices, cultural sort of perspectives on reality. And the other is on an individual level, consciousness and how we see reality So that's kind of my main focus is how do you change consciousness? Well, it sounds like you have a much different series of cultural hurdles to overcome because here in the United States, we have a great organic food movement. We have a lot of farm to table events. There's a lot of connections between producer and consumer and also lots of farmers markets. My only real contact with Japan other than, you know, watching historical documentaries or some of the modern like food documentaries, one that comes to mind is uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And in that, there's a lot of, they walk through the fish markets and things. Or like when Anthony Bourdain visits Japan, that it's all these markets with food and things where people are walking through. But that sounds like that's not nearly as 
accessible to the regular consumer in Japan as might be implied from those kinds of media presentations. Yeah, well, media presentations are a very poor representation of average reality. But there are a lot, it's, it's really nuanced, so it's actually quite hard to explain the entire scope of things. So there are certain things like Japanese are super on a mainstream level, super connected to cherry blossoms. So on the Weather Channel, during spring, they'll tell you which cherry blossoms are blooming. And it starts from the southwest because it's warmer. And so everybody on a national scale follows the cherry blossom kind of opening process. The seasonality of food is quite strong. The location of where certain seaweeds come from, certain mushrooms come from, all of that is still pretty much embedded in our food culture and, and even in giant supermarkets. They use it as marketing. So there's these levels of connection to seasonality, to locale, to certain ways of producing food that are still very much mainstream. But at the same time, there's just like the U.S., there's just, just enormous flow of slowly replacing the little markets that around me, there's still plenty of markets that buy directly from small-scale farmers and then sell it. And the small-scale farmers will make, some will grow organically, some will grow, you know, these heirloom varieties. And so they're still accessible to average consumers in certain areas. But when you go to the city, then your food is, you know, we have so much food that's coming in from China, from the U.S. and Canada. And people, I think, on average, don't really care at that point because it's just you're looking at the price and, and the kind of the beauty of the packaging or the product. And so there's definitely a solid shift over the generations and more and more people are just detached from what food is and I don't know if that's unique to Japan but there are definitely still markets the stuff that you saw in Jiro Dreams of Sushi is definitely still alive but it's slowly dying and the people who work there are growing older our farmers average age I think is 70 now so there's definitely these large shifts that are happening and I'm trying to change those shifts so that we can get more young people to actually look at farming or look at living sustainably or look at social justice as important things that we need to practice as a society because if we don't, there's not much that's going to be left. And when engaging in these kinds of conversations with folks, one of the things that I'm always interested in is finding out how practitioners are meeting people where they're at. And I'm wondering, how are you finding ways that you're able to connect with people in order to kind of overcome some of these cultural issues? Yeah, good question. Well, one of the things that I try to do is I try to make things look fun because it really is the easiest way to get people involved in anything is, is as long as I'm having a ton of fun and getting super excited about worm composts and, you know, growing organic vegetables, then it's not that hard to get people to come. So I try to have fun. I, I have a blog and I try to, sh you know, show how much fun I'm having and 
people who come to the workshops and stuff are I try to make things look beautiful because beautiful or kind of funky because both of those kind of attract curiosity and particularly with urban Japanese populations they're really discriminative of how things look so it has to look beautiful or kind of interesting slightly edgy but safe so I really try to connect to sort of like what are the kind of the threads that pull people particularly consumer populations in Japan toward things and then I try to experiment with that but mainly to keep it simple is, is fun I try to do everything with potlucks the gift economy almost all my workshops are donation based with no obligation to pay no suggested donation no you know it's just kind of like just come and have fun and experience something different and come on an adventure because I love this and I want to spread this and if you come it would make me happy and I'll sure you'll be happy because you'll get tasty food and so those are some of the ways that I've been sort of both presenting things to people and that I practice and the gift economy thing I think has been particularly powerful at pulling people toward the things that I do and then I also do a lot of empathy so I just try to connect to where people are at and the struggles they have and you know if you're in a if you're in a suit and you're pushed into a train every single day at 7 a.m., you know, and you're really, you really feel like a sardine in a can and you, you can feel your chest getting compressed because there's actually not enough space in the train. And then when the doors open, you burst out without control of your body. If that's your daily experience, who cares about GMO or wars in other countries? It's like you're just trying to survive and, and have some sense of like meaning in your life. So I try to connect to that level of people's experience and really kind of say like, yeah, you're just doing your best and you want a better life. You don't know how and you're just curious about what what other possibilities they are and and slowly kind of connect to the stories people are living in and then invite them into a different story and be like you're fully capable of all kinds of things and there's some gift that you have that you can offer to the world and the world's waiting for it and i have a group of people that are experimenting and sometimes they fail sometimes they you know, succeed. But anytime you want, you can join and leave and do what you please. But we're basically here to support you and make a more fun and healthy world. So that's kind of my approach right now. So for those people who are stressed and worried about their day and everything else, you just kind of make space for them to come in, join one of your workshops and just be present and a part of it without necessarily needing it to go in any particular direction other than for them to be there yeah i mean on a on a basic level it's just basically creating space for people to matter and people to have fun and have a sense of community and to use like nonviolent communication has had a profound impact on how i see reality and how i operate in the world and so there's the concept of needs and and basically Every action we take is an attempt to meet a need from the perspective of MVC. So it's, it's always, for me, it's always like trying to connect to the roots, the roots of ecology, the roots of 
the human mind, the roots of the issues that we're facing. And for me, human behavior, it's been most meaningful to see people just trying to meet needs. And if as long as you meet the needs of people, the strategies are infinite, but the needs are fairly limited is not the word, but there's just a few important needs that once you're tuned into those things, like a sense of belonging, a sense of mattering, wanting respect, wanting care, wanting love, compassion, friendship, celebration, you know, once you start to connect to those needs, it's really easy to cater to them and find ways that collectively we can just feel so fulfilled, even though we're not really generating much output on a traditional uh, way of understanding things. So we don't have to make an amazing garden. I could just get people to plant one seed or cut one bamboo branch, and that can be an amazing experience for people. Your yield from these kinds of workshops is not an economic output or a product-based output, but an experiential one? Yeah, what I'm going for is shifting consciousness. So it's it's hard to measure that. But actually, so I've been doing this gift economy experiment since 2012. Like pretty much maybe like 70 or 80% of my workshops is just this kind of donation-based system where there's I make it clear that there's no obligation to give anything back to me if they don't feel inspired. And so the... On an economic level, what's happened is right now, my life has been sustained by donations. And we were able to produce a book. And I've, I started out with no money. I said I didn't want to write the book. I just wanted a book. And so we did this experiment where I just kept saying that in my workshops. And then a bunch of professional writers and editors were like, that's exciting. And so they wrote this. And they, I was thinking of like this black and white kind of half-assed zine. But they made this beautiful 200-page color book that looks like a Japanese magazine. And so we've had like maybe 6,000 of these books in circulation, but we started out with basically no money. So now we have this book out, and now I live in a beautiful house that's actually also by donation. Like this guy said, hey, that's interesting. I like what you're doing. So you can live in this house and just pay donation whatever you want. And so there's actually a real economic basis to this experiment. It's just not the traditional financial currency-based one. And that's my personal life is supported by that. But beyond that is now we have this giant property and we're fixing this this old traditional house that's about 100 years old and fully compostable house. And that's now going to support people who want to live alternatively but don't have maybe a stable job or the financial means to go to a school to learn these things. So it's actually having a real economic impact on other people too. So they can now, they have a place to live, they have a place to experiment with things. And it's also like a, for me, it's it's a type of infrastructure where it's a kind of like a social safety net. Like if people are interested in peace and permaculture, then they're invited to stay at this place and there's no obligation to pay. And we have the leases for 10 years. So at least for 10 years, we have this space that will actually support people to live and do experiments. So 
in that way, there is a measurable economic output. I just don't care about measuring it. But that's kind of sort of how I see it right now. I'm glad that you went in that direction because that answered a question that I had about how you're living in the gift economy. Though my original meaning with that question was more about that you're not worried about being able to grow through a workshop like planting a bunch of strawberries or something that you could then harvest into a saleable product at the end. And actually to answer that, because that's also an interesting thing because I've been thinking about that. Some people in Japan ask me, well, are you going to make Tokyo sustainable? You know, like, are we going to produce all the food that's consumed in Tokyo? And I don't really see that as a realistic option, nor a really exciting option. And what I usually say is, one, I want people, I want everybody in Tokyo to be able to grow their food. They don't have to do it right away. I just want to make sure that everybody realizes they have the capability to because that'll shift the way they live and maybe inevitably they would end up growing more and more of their food and may probably leave Tokyo because there's just not enough land to grow food. But the other thing is, is I think it's really about reconnecting relationships and like the Edo period in Japan, the urban population would exchange their poop for vegetables with farmers and at least that creates this kind of visual and experiential loop that the food that I get from this farmer goes into my body, comes out as poop, which is nutrients for the farm, and the farm needs it because you took the vegetables out, and creates a cycle and and builds this relationship between the urban and the rural. And I think those are the kinds of things that are really essential, especially for people in urban environments, because it's so easy to lose track that we're part of nature and sort of believe that the concrete jungle you're looking at is created by money. And as long as you have money, it works. And that can continue. So, yeah, for me, it's really about, you know, it's less about production and harvest of like produce and it's more about sort of the consciousness level and rebuilding relationships because you know for now at least I think it's easier to get people to grow a little bit of their food do a little bit of compost but really build a solid relationship between rural populations that depend on selling their produce to the city and then slowly shifting toward more and more people being production oriented rather than consumption oriented Then to bring that around, how does that vision tie into the work at the Peace and Permaculture Dojo? The Peace and Permaculture Dojo, well, there's multiple layers for what what I envision the Peace and Permaculture Dojo to do. But one of them is to really help people be able to grow their own food, to have experience in building a house or fixing a house and taking sort of responsibility for inputs and outputs that are going through our lives, whether that's doing humanure and then growing food with that or actually trying to deal with all the waste that we produce in our lives because we buy waste at the stores. And then it's kind of like, what do you do with that waste? And really pushing people to look deeper into that cycle. And so, yeah, one thing is, I want to make sure that people who come to the Peace and Permaculture Dojo know how to grow food, um, know the seasonal cycle of things. 
understand how to fix a house that's made out of wood and straw and clay. And then that for me is is a process of empowerment where it's like if you know how to grow your food and build your house and fix your clothes, you don't really need to depend on money. You can use money and it's a useful tool, but you have more options to choose other strategies than to work for money and then use money to provide all your goods. So for me, it gives people an opportunity to really have other options in life and maybe integrity with their values, which is something that I experienced when I was living in Costa Rica. I was in the forest. There was no place to use money in direct proximity. So most of the things that I used to buy or pay for, I started to just do myself. And then I was like, wow, I can do all this stuff. Like I didn't really know how to chop wood or start a fire or do human or composting. But when I have to, it's actually the human mind's amazing. We just start to figure it out or we ask people who are still doing it. So that's the kind of experience I want people to have is like to actually be confident and to know how amazing they are and to know how amazing our ecosystem is because the only species in the world that uses money is people and everybody else is getting a free ride. So that's kind of a shocking reality. It's like, when did we fool ourselves into like this whole money system and then think that's the most meaningful and luxurious life that we could live is like if you really integrate the cycles of nature into your life that's infinite abundance so that's kind of one of the experiences and the other experience is just helping people cultivate generosity because if we're all generous we're going to be a lot more richer than if each of us are trying to have our own refrigerator and house and car and all that and we're just protecting all of our gifts and resources from each other and that's the poverty of tokyo is like there's so much wealth in that small geographic region but it's so impoverished because everybody is competing with each other and protecting all their gifts and resources from each other because it's a waste if you give something you're actually losing economic you know, negative. And so you want to charge everybody for everything you can do because you're getting charged for everything you can do by somebody else. And I want to shift that to the more generous we are, the more relaxed we'll be, the more wealthier we'll feel, and the more these gifts will cycle. And I'm using my life as an experiment, and now I'm shifting out to the dojo and just being like, look, it's possible. It's a reality. You can do it. And and I, I love my life, and I, I want to invite people to just see another world that's a lot more beautiful and compassionate and integrity with our values. And I think all of us, probably when we were children, imagined this kind of life, and then slowly we were taught or brainwashed or educated into being like, no, your function as a human is to make money and spend money, and that's how the world works. And I really have shifted quite a bit and see the world working in a whole different way. You create generosity through the experience of giving and empowerment through self-reliance. And being connected with nature because nature, if you can have nature as your foundation, that's so much power. And if you 
grow a tomato, you know, you realize that it produces so much more than you planted. And then you, you basically have tomatoes rotting, so you have to give it away. And so it's kind of like by being connected to nature, you get connected to a natural flow of generosity. And it doesn't take much effort because you're kind of pushed to be like, okay, you either process it, you let it rot, or you overeat. So you can just give it away. And then it would have been waste if you didn't give it away. And now by giving it away, the people who received it are extra happy. And then they'll start giving stuff away. And that cycle starts to create a whole different ripple. There are so many people within the permaculture community and in other activist circles that are showing us these different ways that we can live that can be joyful and abundant that are just so different from what many of us experience in our day to day. And I'm thankful for these kinds of conversations so that more of these voices get added so that it's not just one in the wilderness, but it becomes a chorus then that's lifted up that gives other people the inspiration to know that this is possible. And I'd love to end on that note, but I always like to make sure that people have a an opportunity for their final thoughts. So before we draw this to a close, Kai, do you have anything else that you'd like to share about yourself, your life, your thoughts, your work in Japan, really anything that you'd like to bring to the floor? Yeah, I guess just two things I want to leave people with. One is, for me, permaculture is designing or or creating conditions for beauty to unfold that's really what drives me is is i just want to live in a more beautiful world and i want more more people to experience the beauty of the magnificence of the planet that we live in and i guess the other phrase that has really kept me going is this guy who worked with you know uh with uh gandhi Binoba Bhave is his name, super amazing human being. And his book that I really love, the title is Moved by Love. That's really been the heart of how I live now is instead of making decisions based on fear or promoting fear as a way of motivating people to take action, whether it's for war or for, you know, social good, it's like, how can we ourselves be more moved by love and invite people to be moved by love. Well, thank you, Kai, for that and for everything else you've shared with us today and for joining me for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that was Kai Sawyer. Find out more about him and his work at tokyourbanpermaculture.com and livingpermaculture.blogspot.com. You'll find links to those and numerous other resources including a video tour of the Peace and Permaculture Dojo, in the show notes. Something Kai wanted me to mention that didn't make it into our conversation is the ongoing impact and questions that result from the Fukushima Daiichi power plant meltdown. I didn't realize until Kai shared his follow-up email with me that the Fukushima prefecture was one of the leading organic food-growing regions in Japan. With that knowledge, Kai posed some questions to me. What happens then to the organic or natural farmer who carefully and with a lot of love grew beautiful soil for decades that's now contaminated with cesium-134 and 137? Who will buy their produce? Who will help them rebuild their entire life? Also in Fukushima Prefecture was an innovative permaculture project at Itate Village 
that sought to redesign the community using permaculture. The plan with these changes was to reverse the process of rural depopulation, to keep residents in the community rather than having them leave for cities. To Kai's knowledge, it's the only initiative of its kind in Japan, one where an entire village was a permaculture design site. Off the top of my head, as I put together these show notes, I can't think of many other places beyond some of the hands-on transition towns where there's anything like this in the world. There are so few of these holistic, community-wide projects like this. And here, thanks to the proximity to the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant and the ways the wind blew, high levels of radiation fell on this village, shutting down the experiment as the entire community was evacuated by the government. This project to preserve community was destroyed by a single disaster that was responded to with modern practices now so ingrained they seem traditional and the only path forward. We have rules and regulations and government protocols that determine how we react to a disaster of any kind. But I wonder, how could this situation have been different if more communities in Japan were transformed by the whole system's design of permaculture and had the cultural and social structures and consciousness changed as a result? As we grow as practitioners, how can we take these ideas of thinking and organizing into our own communities and then, in time, change the way that our systems are governed and lived in so that disasters like Fukushima Daiichi don't occur in the first place, and also to protect and support projects like that at Itate Village. If you have thoughts on this or anything else Kai and I spoke about, I'd love to hear from you. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and your community.